Um, I kind of like the energy that that old hen has taken on. If you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, I want to read something that almost no pastor reads from the pulpit. I want to read a genealogy. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and as we read this, just remember Paul's words that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, okay? And it's profitable in a number of different ways, and by faith we're going to receive that from the Lord. Hear the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Uh, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa. Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah. Uzziah begot Jotham, Jotham begot Ahaz, and Ahaz begot Hezekiah. Hezekiah begot Manasseh, Manasseh begot Ammon, and Ammon begot Josiah. Josiah begot Jeconiah and his brothers about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel begot Abiud, Abiud begot Eliakim, and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok, Zadok begot Akim, and Akim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eleazar, Eleazar begot Mathan, and Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called uh, Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations, and from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we receive your word. We delight ourselves in it. Uh, you have given to us a light uh, to guide our paths. I pray that you would enable me to be a faithful expositor of it and each one of us to receive it by faith in our hearts to live it out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I get two reactions from people when I ask them how their uh, Christmas holidays went. And uh, one reaction is obvious that they just had a great time. They enjoy being around their relatives. And uh, the other reaction, sometimes people hedge a little bit and they say, well, you know how it is with relatives. And uh, other people just dive straight in. They said, I hate it. <laughs> you know, I'm glad it's short because we never get along. Our relatives are such jerks. And um, so as I was meditating on um, uh, this sermon this past Thursday, I think it was, Deb Haynes was doing up the, the labels and doing overheads and stuff like that. And, and she was asking what the text was, and I was talking about, you know, all of this genealogy and stuff, and she said, oh, you mean about crummy relatives? And I said, that's the title. I've been looking for a title, crummy relatives. That's it. And uh, so we're going to be looking at the crummy relatives and some nice ones that Christ identified with, and um, uh, some of them uh, were very, very tough to live with. And it's in seeing how Christ related to those relatives, I think, that we can be encouraged to not give up. Now, the first thing I want to look at is in verse 17, 
And we have to come to grips with this. It's God is sovereign. Now, you see it all the way through this, but verse 17 especially, it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. Now, that's almost too neat to be believable for some people, and yet it's true. Uh, the Lord has grouped things. I, I, that's one of my hobbies is uh, chronology and seeing the time factors. And it's, a, it's absolutely remarkable to see how God has in many different numbers neatly divided all of history up. 500-year periods and there's other periods of jubilee uh, that, um, that relate. And what it shows to me is that God had every one of those be, have an important part in the preparation for the Messiah. It could not have been one less. It could not have been one more than was there. All of those were needed. And in terms of this genealogy, we're going to be seeing that there was a lot of chaos down through those years, but God wants us to know that there was a symmetry in the midst of that chaos, that God was in his sovereign providence overruling all of that. And I want to encourage you to realize as well that uh, uh, God was sovereign in what family you were born into, what grandparents you had. And, you know, for a thousand, two thousand years going back, God had placed every one of your ancestors perfectly in place to produce you to be the person that you are today. Uh, he is sovereign not only over the sun, the moon, and the stars, but he is sovereign over the actions of people. Now, some people think, okay, sure, he's sovereign over wars, he's sovereign over big actions of people. But God says, no, he is sovereign over who you got attracted to. He's sovereign over conception. He's sovereign over the genetics and the things that went into the forming of your personality. What family that you got born into, and yes, he is sovereign over the crummy relatives uh, that uh, he has placed into your, into your life, or the nice relatives, as the case may be. And it's not until we bow to God's sovereignty that we can begin to have an insight into what God is developing in our lives and in their lives to his glory. And so we're going to be looking at that a little bit. God is sovereign. Secondly, God has made us to be creatures of hope. Now, this is where the tension comes in. We know that God has promised change in this world, and so we have a hope for change. Uh, we know about God's grace, and so we have hope uh, for changes in those crummy relatives. And yet, if we have this hope uh, that is substituted with something that's very similar but is quite different, it can actually lead to incredible frustration and um, a bitterness in the lives of people. And so it's very important that we hold on to this hope in a biblical fashion and we make sure it is a biblical hope. And what I want to do is I want to illustrate with the hope that God placed in the coming Messiah. Ever since God made the promise in Genesis 3 to Adam and Eve that he was going to be bringing a Messiah, people have been looking forward to the Messiah uh, to be uh, their Savior. Uh, they were looking with expectation. And verse 1 begins with a baited hook for the Jews because they were looking for the seed of Abraham. They were looking for the seed of David. And Matthew says, uh, you don't have to look any further. The Christ has come. The Messiah has come. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, those words would have caught the attention of every Jew the moment they read that. They wouldn't have just skimmed over that uh, because they have been waiting for the Messiah for so many years. 
And as he develops this genealogy, and he does this through the rest of the book, but as he's developing this genealogy, he already gives hints as to what the answers to all of the objections that the, the, uh, the Jews are going to come up with are. And they're going to come up with all kinds of objections. Uh, they're going to say, well, we don't see a reign of glory. Uh, how do we know Christ has come? We're still oppressed by the Romans. If the Messiah has come, why are things not different? How come we're not a nation now that's dominant over the whole earth? Where are the riches? Where's the plenty? Where's the power? Uh, where's the comfort? How come we have to deal with so many crummy people in the Roman government? And how come we have to deal with so many crub crummy civil officers in the state of Israel? How can we know that the Messiah has come? And Matthew quietly and very subtly reminds them through this realistic genealogy that, um, and that includes many crummy relatives, that God did not send a Savior to remove all of the difficult circumstances from our lives. Now, that's the promise of a political Savior, okay? That's the promise of politicians. You vote for me, and there'll be a chicken in every pot. You know, all of the school problems will go away. Yeah, you vote for me, and your taxes are going to go down, and all your benefits are going to go up, and and uh, there just will not be any terrorist problems. Vote for me and you're going to have a carefree life. That's the politician's answer. And that's a much more popular answer than the answer that Jesus gives because Jesus says, I came to save you from your sins and to make you responsible in the middle of your, your difficult circumstances, not just to remove all of your circumstances. In fact, I've brought those circumstances precisely to develop your character uh, and, 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 and molded into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's not the kind of a savior that many people are wanting. They want a political Messiah who's going to save them from their circumstances, and they kind of shy away from any Messiah that says, I want to change your heart. No, just, just leave my heart alone. Here's the things you need to fix uh, out there. Now, the real hope that Abraham had, it wasn't this false hope, this imitation hope, the real hope that Abraham had was a savior who would save him from his sinful actions, his sinful escapism, his sinful fears, his sinful anger. The real hope was a savior who would help him to conquer his circumstances, not to escape from his circumstances. A savior who would teach him how to live with and influence crummy relatives rather than saying, smile, I've got a wonderful plan for your life and if you just vote for me, uh, your life will be carefree. The bottom line from the second point is we need to cast away a false expectation, a false hope, and embrace the real hope that the Lord Jesus has given to us, which means God has given to us a hope that he will enable us to fight when it's time to fight. He's given us a hope that will enable us to, you know, back down from a defense of our rights, you know, when it's time to back down. Uh, uh, he has given to us a... A hope that stands up for principles when it is needed, that abandons self-gratification, stirs up a passion for faithfully serving the Lord and glorifying Him. And let me tell you, if you've got that hope, a hope that is, 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 is passionate about extending God's fame and God's name in this world, your life is just going to be filled with satisfaction but if you continue to hold on to a political kind of a savior and, and you want God to just fix your circumstances and leave my heart alone, uh, you're going to be constantly miserable. You're going to be constantly frustrated because that's not God's intention for your life. 
He has deliberately brought difficulties into your lives because those are the things that give you the opportunity to taste of his grace, to grow, to respond, to minister as God intended us uh, to minister. Now, don't get me wrong. uh, When there's a biblical hope, there are times of discouragement as well. And I've labeled the three divisions of those 14 generations as the birth, the death, and the resurrection of a vision. So our third point is the birth of a vision, verses 1 through 6. Now, the birth of the vision here, really for the Jews, started with Abraham, obviously, in 2000 B.C. And almost every entry of names that Matthew gives serves to illustrate that the Abrahamic promise to his seed, in other words, to Jesus, to Christ, was that God would choose to bless all the families of the earth, not just the Jews, but all the families of the earth. Now, there's several themes, actually, but you can look for in this genealogy God's blessing to Gentiles, God's blessing to the unworthy. Look for statements that no one can be saved through his own works, uh, that the bloodline does not save us, position and prestige have no bearing with God. Look for illustration that God delights in saving crummy relatives. Now, this genealogy makes clear that God does not choose the mighty and the wise and the righteous like the Pharisees thought that he would. He chooses those who know that they are undeserving, that they're weak, those who are not very wise, in order to demonstrate when men do do great things, it's not because of them. It's simply because of God's grace. And actually, even David and Abraham, who are tremendous heroes, And they are. We don't want to put those down. We shouldn't say that they are paragons of virtue, that they are completely sin-free, because David, we know right off the bat, he sinned with his polygamy. He sinned with adultery. He sinned with lying and with murder. And uh, Scripture is also clear that God did not choose Abraham because he was such a righteous man. When God chose Abraham, he was an idolater in Ur of the Chaldees, and his parents were idolaters. And you can read that in Joshua 24, uh, verses 2 through 3. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nahor, dwelt on the other side of river in old times, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham. And Jews may have missed that or conveniently forgotten that fact as they first read through the genealogy. But as they read through the book, it's going to become very obvious that bloodlines do not count with God. It's a spiritual relationship. Let me give you an example. Matthew 3, verse 9. Christ says, And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Well, he's saying it's not genetics, right? If God can raise up children to Abraham from stones, he can raise up children to Abraham from anybody. It is God's sovereign grace taking people, changing their hearts, uniting them to Jesus, the true seed of Abraham that makes us seed of Abraham as well. And so when John the Baptist demanded that the Jews be baptized, this is proselyte baptism he was calling them to, he was saying, you guys are pagans, you've been cut off from the covenant, and if you want to get into the covenant, you better get baptized and come on in. That's why the Pharisees were so offended. And that's why John the Baptist said, look, you think you're children of Abraham. God is able to raise them up from these stones. And he called them uh, anything but children of Abraham. And so uh, it was promised to Abraham that in his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, let's just assume that Jews who read this genealogy would miss the fact that Abraham and David were unworthy. 
Matthew makes sure by the time they get through reading this genealogy, it will be unmistakably clear that this is not uh, the case. They will not miss it for very long. Look at the catalog. Verse 2 says, Abraham begot Isaac. Now, Isaac was a hero of the faith, uh, but he was not perfect. Uh, Isaac was a coward who allowed his wife to get taken by some sleazy sheik into his harem so that he wouldn't have to die. He tells his wife, please don't say that I, uh, you're my wife because they might kill me. Uh, just say you're my sister. And so here he takes him off to his, uh, to his harem. And how would you like it, women, if your husband uh, let you down like that and didn't stick up for you and defend you? Okay? So in one sense, he was a, he was a, a coward. Uh, but there were other problems as well in, in Isaac's life. In his old age, if Isaac had gotten his way, Esau and the Edomites who descended from him would have received the blessing, not Jacob. Jacob was blessed, no thanks to Isaac. And uh, that was something I think would have been troubling to the Jews. Um, it says Isaac begot Jacob. Now, Jacob was a schemer. He was a liar. Now, Jews may not have had any problems with uh, Jacob uh, scheming, uh, scheming against Esau because the Edomites were their enemies. But to scheme and to lie and to cheat against your father, that was low. That is being a crummy son in Jewish eyes. And Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Now, of all of the people to be in the line of Messiah, this is an odd one here. As a kid, my vote was for Joseph when I was reading through. And when I realized my parents told me that the Messiah came through Judah, I said, no, it can't be. It's got to come through Joseph. I mean, Joseph, I thought, was such a cool character. And uh, I was really troubled that God would pick Leah rather than Rachel. And you all know the love story there. It just broke my heart when I realized, you've got to be kidding. It's not coming through Rachel. It was such a great love story. Here it is. Jacob goes off to this land. He's in real trouble with Esau. And he meets Rachel, and it's love at first sight. And he asks Laban, I'd love to marry your daughter. He says, well, where's the dowry? Which is what we're going to be asking uh, potential suitors, you know, as well. But uh, <laughs> hopefully we'll be a little bit nicer than Laban, right? So where's the dowry? And he says, well, I don't really have any money, but I'd be happy to work for you. And so they make a bargain. They say, okay, you work for me seven years and you can have Rachel. And it says his love for Rachel was so great, it seemed like the seven years were as nothing. And so he gets to the end of that time and they have this big wedding, wedding feast. And then at the end of the, the wedding, you know, they consummate the marriage in the tent. He goes into the tent, it's dark, and Laban has switched Leah for Rachel. Now, it's dark. He doesn't know anything. And don't tell me that Leah was not a part of this scheme, this scam. She could have said something, but she chose not to do it. And boy, is Jacob troubled the next day when he finds out who it is. And he gets on Laban's case, and he says, oh, it's not our custom, you know, to do it. But he said, why did you do this? He said, don't worry. We'll give you Rachel as well. But, you know, it was not a happy home. Two wives, sure, he gets Rachel, but it kind of destroyed things uh, for, uh, some, uh, for some time. And some of you may think, you know, we've got difficulty. We've got troubles in our, our family. But think of the troubles that Jacob had in his family. Uh, you have troubles with your in-laws. Think of what it would be like to have an in-law like Laban. I mean, this guy was a scoundrel. Uh, he cheated them. He took away the dowry that had been given, that uh, Jacob had earned up and given to his uh, daughters. He took that away. And finally, fed up, after many years of serving Laban, 
they, they run out of that place with his wives, his children, and his daughters. And even after Laban is warned by God in a dream, don't you touch uh, Jacob, um, uh, Laban says, you know, I have the right to kill you because these are my daughters and these are my children. He didn't even uh, uh, think that the children belong to Jacob. And all of these flocks are mine. That's the kind of, uh, uh, the kind of in-law that Jacob had to deal with. And yet God sovereignly used Leah to be a mother, scheming Leah to be a mother in Christ's genealogy. Remember, God is sovereign and we don't get to make up the story. God makes up the story. We sometimes wish we could change the story in Scripture, uh, just script it a little bit different so it would be a nice fairy tale. We sometimes wish we could change the story in our own lives. And Lord, if you could have just given me slightly different relatives than what you have given to me, we have to realize that you know, God is sovereign and he has put those people into your lives for a specific purpose. And our job is not to buck God's sovereignty. Our job is to glorify God to the best of our abilities in the midst of our difficulties. God's put those difficulties there for your sanctification. Now let's move on. The Jews could have overlooked the fact that Judah was willing to visit a Canaanite harlot, even though that would be troubling, and that he unknowingly committed incest in the process because his uh, daughter-in-law had pretended to be that harlot. But what must have seemed strange to the Jews is the way that God would honor a man who had plotted to kill his brother Joseph. And uh, then when the opportunity for money came up, sold his brother Joseph into slavery. Talk about a crummy brother. And what would be even more galling to a Jew, he married a Canaanite. Judah, he was a betrayer of his own flesh and blood, and he married one of the hated Canaanites. Now Matthew goes on, he says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now by now, the Jews are hoping no Gentile is reading this, uh, this genealogy because it's an embarrassing piece of history, you know, uh, what's going on here. Not only is the Messiah son of idolaters, adulterers, and a man guilty of attempted fratricide, he was a son of an incestuous relationship. Can you see why I began this uh, sermon by saying that uh, Christ was willing to identify with crummy relatives? The next set of names represent people who are born in Egyptian captivity. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Amminadab. Uh, these were generations that uh, Joshua describes as having been caught in idolatry. Amminadab was a prince who refused to conquer the land of Canaan. And he rot, his corpse rotted in the wilderness because of his unbelief. Uh, the next two names represent great men of faith who had no tarnish to their name as far as I know. Aminadab begot Nashan. Nashan begot Solomon. Now, to me, this is very encouraging because it's not a foregone conclusion that uh, uh, people have to have a tarnished reputation. Uh, these people were upright before the Lord, and your life can be upright. There's no reason why yeah, we can excuse uh, tarnished reputations. Uh, Solomon, it says, begot Boaz by Rahab. Now, nothing wrong with Rahab, uh, but for the Jews, this would have been embarrassing as well. Uh, remember the story of Rahab? She was a former uh, harlot uh, who... Uh, rescued the spies, uh, turned over the city, you know, to the Israelites, and um, she was soundly converted, became a godly lady. But here Boaz has married this former temple prostitute. 
And so it's still another stain on the genealogy. In fact, I should point out, most of you probably have better genealogies than Jesus did. I mean, God has done this so deliberately, so deliberately. Now, it seems Matthew just continues to undermine the prideful arrogance of the Jews because any uninspired writer uh, amongst the Jews probably would have been tempted to highlight the names that are great and to not mention any of these uh, pagan women that are brought into uh, the genealogy. But by inspiration, it says, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Now, you may uh, remember some of the history of Ruth. Uh, Ruth was a Moabite who Josephus says was the daughter of the obese tyrant uh, Eglon. And uh, Eglon had been tyrannizing Israel for quite some time, and God raised up a judge by the name of Ehud who sharpened a dagger and hid it in his uh, 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 leg. And he went to Eglon presenting their tribute, and he says, I have a special message from the Lord for you. Yeah, it was a great message. It was a knife in his stomach. And uh, it talks about the dirt coming out. This guy was a huge, obese person. And the way that the whole thing was written, everybody cheers. They say, yes, he got his comeuppance. And nobody except for God would have thought to extend mercy to the family of Eglon. And yet God does by taking uh, this Ruth out and having her be married to, uh, be married to um, Chilion. Now, here's the thing. God overrules even in the sinful decisions of people because it was a sin for him to have married outside of the faith. Uh, uh, Ruth, the other counterpart, trying to remember uh, her name, she wasn't a believer, but I don't think Ruth was a believer uh, when she uh, got married to Chilion either. God uh, destroys both of the sons of Naomi, and Ruth is soundly converted. And uh, she comes to Israel... And if you've never read the book of Ruth, it is one of the funnest stories. Now, this is one of those Cinderella stories, you know. It's just, it's really fun to read. You have to read it. But those names beautifully demonstrate how God identified, Christ identified with sinners, took them to himself, changed them, purified them. And it's another testimony to the fact that he is to be the Savior and the blessing for all of the families of the earth. Now, Matthew goes on. Obed begot Jesse. Nothing wrong with Jesse. He was a man of God, uh, but he was a peasant. And David's foes scorned the idea that uh, Jesse could have anything kingly about him. In fact, a commentary point, point out, when Saul says, this son of Jesse, uh, it's a term of der derogation. Is that the right word? Der it's a derogatory term. He's uh, really putting him, uh, putting him down. But... Uh, Christ was willing to associate with those of humble origins. And Jesse begot David the king. You already know about him. He was a man with a heart uh, after God. But he certainly was not perfect because verse 6 goes on to say, David, begot, uh, David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Ouch. I mean, <laughs> why does he have to mention all of these details? Usually Jews didn't have women in their genealogies, right? They just stuck to the facts. But he's got to amplify these embarrassing things for the Jews because this is highlighting the fact David's murder and David's adultery. And it also shows he was willing to associate with Hittites because Bathsheba's husband uh, was a converted Hittite. And so this is the birth of a vision. Uh, births are kind of messy, aren't they? They're bloody. They're painful. They're difficult. 
And yet there is hope in those births. There's encouragement in those births. And that's the way that this whole thing is here. It's an incredible list of people who are crying out, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. What a list. A kidnapper, a coward, a deceiver, a whore, an incestuous relationship, two Canaanites, a Moabitess, an adulterer, a murderer, and the list goes on. Now, how would you like that in your family tree? Get you really excited about doing genealogy work, wouldn't it? <laughs> Uh, many of these were crummy relatives. Some of them were good. But the interesting thing about this is that the good ones, the ones that the Jews would have been proud of, he just mentions, and the ones they would have cringed over, he goes out of his way to mention some fact that makes the Jews cringe. Matthew, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wanted to make it unmistakably clear Jesus does not just associate with the righteous. He was a friend of what? A friend, publicans and sinners, which says something about God's attitude toward tax collectors, right? Publicans and sinners. <laughs> but he didn't reject them, did he? He saved them. He brought them to himself. And so um, his purpose was to have a kingdom that was born out of shame, and not out of glory, a kingdom that would only bring glory to himself. And as we consider what the future ministry of this church ought to be, I think we need to make it unmistakably clear that we will welcome the downtrodden, the poor, or the people who don't have their lives all put together, the despised, the divorced, the single parent. If this church becomes a church where only the perfect and the rich and the upright are welcome, we have shamed the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's the message that's very clear. We've missed what the incarnation and the cross is all about. And so really, I'm, I really don't care that much about uh, padded pews and beautiful buildings, even though I will take, if the Lord gives it to me, that building across the street, praise Jesus. I mean, that'd be great. Uh, why would it be great? Not because it makes us comfortable, but because I think it would enable us to reach out more effectively. But if we were convinced that a beautiful building would actually hinder our work for the Lord Jesus Christ, hinder His glory, we had to turn 180 degrees around. Now, I think we could take that building and use it quite, uh, quite well. So you can keep praying for that building. But uh, we need to be people who minister to publicans and sinners. Now, I think most of us recognize that we need to do that. There's crummy sinners out there in the world. We need to reach them and be patient with them and minister and reach out to them. Where it becomes difficult is doing the same thing with our family. Isn't that right? Why is it that it's the hardest thing for us to love those who are in our family who are crummy relatives? The grace we give to visitors uh, at church or people at work or others uh, who are lost in sin, we need to be willing to give to our families. And our vision is wrong if we want to escape from the crummy family or crummy in-laws. Instead, Christ calls us to minister to them, to reach out, to identify with them, to love them, to speak to them. Why? Because Christ is our model. He's the pattern that we need to be following. Now, there are other applications we could make as well. Uh, perhaps you've had a messed up year or maybe your whole past life has been messed up. Maybe you're the crummy relative everybody else is trying to avoid, you know, wishes wouldn't show up at the Christmas celebration. 
And yet, you can have hope and encouragement as well that Jesus Christ came precisely to identify with you and to give you victory and transformation and to give you uh, encouragement and satisfaction in life. Christ came to change us, change us from the inside out. And uh, so we need to recognize, even though we're weak, even though we're crummy, that... um, Apart from Christ, we can do nothing, but we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, right? And we need to lay hold of that faith, and we need to be willing to change and to be changed by His grace. Greater is He who is in us than he who is in the world. And so it does not matter what you used to be in Christ. What matters is what are you in Christ now, and what will you become in Christ? And that you pursue, excuse me, that upward goal. Christ has not given up on you. We're not going to give up on you, and you shouldn't give up on you either. Okay? You need to continue pressing toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. They were saints in this genealogy. They were saints not because of what they did, but because of the imputed merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what made them saints. And so that's the, that's the birth of the vision. It's messy, but it's filled with hope, true hope. Now let's move on to point four. The next step that Matthew highlights is the death of a vision. In the previous passage... Uh, Though there were many problems, there was great uh, progress because, after all, David, um, you know, he managed to pull together an incredible kingdom. And Solomon is said to have had one of the greatest kingdoms ever in terms of power and prestige and money and influence. Uh, It was incredible, but already things were beginning to fall apart in Solomon's kingdom, Uh, in part because of all of these wives, these foreign pagan wives that he had taken to himself and uh, the idolatry that he allowed them to do, and he eventually got into idolatry. But with his son Rehoboam, things really begin to break down. In fact, that was the time when the kingdom split. The northern kingdom of Israel and then the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, the northern kingdom of Israel did not have one single good king. They were all terrible. Southern kingdom had some terrible kings, but they also had some uh, good kings. Uh, during times of repentance and revival, but the downward swing seems to be on the ascendancy until finally God is so fed up with Israel, He casts them into exile in Babylon. Now, when we said God identifies with sinners, we do not mean that God left them in their sin. And that is so important to realize. He saves people from their sin, and when a church becomes so carnal... And so self-preoccupied that it does not want to be saved from its sin, it refuses to repent of its sin, it too is going to be cast out like Israel was. God did not send Christ to, to make us comfortable in our sin. He gave Christ to save us from our sin. So the first section had sinners, yes, but they were sinners who were overcoming their sin, who were being transformed into the image of Christ. David wept. He wept over his sins. He hated his sins. He resolved not to sin again. The difference between the first section and the second section is most of the people in the second section could care less about their sins. Now, when you've got relatives, crummy relatives, who don't care about their crumminess, it really makes it tough uh, to associate with them. But when you've got crummy relatives who hate their crumminess, who repent of their crumminess, who want to grow out of that and who want to be conformed to the image of Christ, it makes it much easier, doesn't it? But you know what? Christ wants us to deal with both. He dealt with both. And he ensures we're going to have to deal with both as well. Now, are we going to have to cast some of our relatives into exile? Well, probably uh, occasionally that does come up. Uh, But 
make sure that you have done everything that you can, just as God did, to reach out to them, to bless them, to love them, to conquer, to overcome evil with good rather than being overcome uh, by evil. Uh, Manasseh is a great example there in verse 10. You could not have gotten a worse character than Manasseh. Uh, He was an awful guy. And if I was Manasseh's son, I think I would say, I'm sorry, kids, you're not going to see Grandpa. He is such a corrupting, evil influence, you're not going to see him. Until Manasseh repented, because Manasseh really was a, a bad guy. There are times where you have to make divisions. But he repented. And at that point, when people repent, we need to be ready to restore them. We need to be ready to receive them and to work uh, in their lives. Uh, There was a change in his life. There was a change in Jeconiah's life as well. And this brings us to the last point, the restoration of the vision. Very uh, discouraging times. Verse 12 says, And after they were brought back to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shealtiel, and Shealtiel begot Zerubbabel. Jeconiah's counted twice. It's counted once in verse 11 and again in verse 12 because of how radically his life had been changed. It's almost like he became a new person and there was a new family, new generation. He was banished from the throne and he was put into prison in Babylon. But while he was there, he converted and he was raised, he was elevated higher than all of the other kings of Babylon. Jeremiah 52, 31 through 34 talks about that. And so this is the beginning of an upward swing. Repentance brings restoration. And so, you know, in one sense, it's never too late to repent. I mean, there is the unpardonable sin where you can't be restored to repentance. But if a person has repented, the Lord restores. Now, these men start a long line of men who are true to God, and who take their pursuit of righteousness seriously. Zerubbabel uh, is the only one we know a lot about, but the Scripture says he was as close to God as a signet ring. That's pretty close. He's very, very close to God. And so the line starts uh, with righteousness in troubling t- troublous times, and it ends with Joseph, a righteous man, in troubled times. Most of these men were unknown. They're obscure as far as the world is concerned, but to God, they were important. The praise of God is achieved in terms of faithfulness to Him, and the kingdom of God comes in terms of faithfulness to Him, not popularity. And I think that, too, can be a lesson, because it does not matter if we are as insignificant and unknown as the carpenter, Joseph. Uh, It does not matter if we're in times of peace, like in Zerubbabel's time, or in times of war, like uh, those during the time of the Maccabean Wars. What matters is, are we faithful to God with the circumstances God has placed us in? That's what matters. God's the one who arranges the times and the seasons to suit his purposes. And he says, are you going to be men, women, and children who are going to be out and out for for me? Are you going to be people that will be faithful? We may think that we're not much, but look at the happy times. Uh, that occurred from the time of Ezra to the time of Christ because people who were scraped off the bottom of the barrel were willing to be used, willing to be nobodies, uh, to remain unknown in their service to God and to continue to serve Him even if nobody else cared about their service. Now, don't just be satisfied. God has scraped you off the bottom of the barrel and is using you to His glory. Have the same grace to your crummy relatives that God has had to your crumminess. Have the same grace 
Now, does that mean you're always going to have to put up with uh, what they say and what they do? No. Um, I think we do need to put up with a lot more than we tend to put up with. Uh, it doesn't hurt, you know, for us to take slander and to take uh, bad things and even for our kids to receive uh, difficulty and persecution from our relatives. We can put up with a lot. There does come a time sometimes when we have to, as it were, cast them into exile uh, until they repent. But uh, we need to make sure it's not just the crumminess that uh, makes us do that. Um, we need to be willing to make sacrifices. And so it's my prayer that each one of us would be faithful to the message of Advent and uh, that Dominion Covenant Church would seek to reach out to the lost of Omaha and uh, to bring a godly testimony to it. Amen. Father God, thank you for this passage where there's so many hidden uh, gems of what you were teaching through the rest of the book of Matthew. And I pray that you would help us to uh, really lay hold of this material, to make it part of our heart, to be willing uh, not to follow after and keep hoping and hoping for a political Messiah. Uh, Father, that just leads us to, to discouragement, bitterness, and giving up. But help us, Father, instead to look to the true Messiah, the Messiah who saves us from our sins. And it makes us holy in the midst of difficult circumstances. Father, may each one of us this morning embrace and love and praise the true Messiah and the true hope. And I pray that uh, this congregation would be used uh, to accomplish uh, mighty things, whether we are recognized or not for it, but for the advancement of your kingdom in this city because we are humble in our own eyes so that you can lift us up. And we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our only Savior.